If I've not met you yet, my name is Luke. It's good to have you here. We are on part three of a four-part journey through Advent, which is another way of saying coming. And uh, we have been in one text today, or the last three weeks, we're going to be in again today. It's in Isaiah 9. So I'm going to read it to you. It will be on the screen as well. And then we're going to pick it up in verse 2. So this is Isaiah 9, verses 2 through 7. And this is the word of the Lord for us today. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with righteousness and with justice from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You know, during the holidays, it's interesting to see who is and who is not a hugger, right? Some people don't like to be hugged very tightly. They don't like the idea of some, some arms coming around them and wrapping them up and kind of holding them close. It's uncomfortable. They need space. They need you to stand back a few steps and give them a little bit more of a bubble. Now, I actually like giving hugs more than I like to get them. I just do. I like to hug, but man, it's always easy to spot a non-hugger. You can see them a mile away, right? Some of you just got to experience that. You hold them tightly, and you can feel it. You can sense the cringe inside of them. They're counting seconds, but for them, it's minutes, right? Here's the joke on you non-huggers. All of us huggers, we know that's happening to you, and it makes us want to do it more, right? <laughs> so, not even close to the same thing. Not even close to the same effect. God has shown us that Christmas is about his eternal embrace on his church and his people. That's what Christmas really is. It's his ultimate embrace. And I would contend that although all of us like to think that we enjoy that hug, we don't. I'd like to submit that a lot of times we try to pry his arms off of us because it's uncomfortable for us. Because spiritually, I don't think we're the huggers that we think we are. I think spiritually, we want a little bit of space. We need God to step back a couple steps and give us our bubble back. And I think this is true for even those of us who are spiritually gooey. You know what I'm saying when I say spiritually gooey? Some of you are spiritually gooey, and I'm going to try not to offend you. I remember like eight or nine years ago, I was thinking about this this morning. There was a song that was real popular. It was going through the church. I think it was John Mark McMillan. He wrote the song. He's known for songs like this, too. I think it's How He Loves Us or Oh, How He Loves Us. It was a song that sounded like that, but there was a lyric in there that says, when heaven meets earth like a sloppy, wet kiss, okay? I remember when that song came out. 
I remember being in South Florida during a worship service where I saw those lyrics on a screen and I thought, nope, not singing that, you know? That's too gooey for me. I'm all about sloppy wet kisses when it's with your honey, totally fine. But the idea of God giving us a sloppy wet kiss was just a bit too gooey. For some of you in here, you saw that that lyric, and you thought, yes, like a gooey kiss, Jesus, bring it on. And that would mean you. You're a gooey person. Probably share people's food, probably feel like shoes are a restriction to you, and you'd like to kick those off. Even for you, if that is you, even you who value high relationship in in very, very tight proximity, even you are going to be guilty of wanting to pry God's arms off as he tries to hug you. It's something that's in all of us. It's in all of us. The flesh, we want some space. We need God to stand back just a little bit. You know, one of the hardest views of Jesus, when we think of Jesus, it's not hard to consider him or think of him as a rescuer or a hero um, or redemption. It's not hard to think of him as the last high priest or a a great sacrifice or a lamb or a lion or a justifier. None None of those things, an atoner. Those don't freak us out. But whenever we say the word father, now that's different. Father evokes a a cascade of emotions depending on who you're talking to, right? And I can't even talk around those. I mean, you have them. All I have to do is say father, and some of you immediately have a response because some of you had some crappy dads. Capital C, crappy, right? Some of you, you might not even know who your dad is. Maybe he was gone all the time. Maybe he bailed. When you were just a kid, you've never had a fathering experience. I think probably most of us had dads that just tried the best that they could and just didn't pull it off. You know why? Because they're imperfect. And there's no such thing as a perfect dad. They don't exist. So I can't get around some of the emotions that you might have about your earthly father this morning. I can only remind you that the earthly father is an imperfect picture at best imperfect picture. So as we move through this Advent season, today we get to look and see how Jesus rescues us and, hear me now, fathers us as everlasting father, as everlasting father. He cares for us as dad. And I think at some point, as we look through the text, and as we start to ask ourselves from some questions, you, you will be tempted to again pull his arms off of you. You'll be tempted to kind of just maybe cringe. Give me a little bit of room. Hear me, that's the broken part of you that's doing that. That's the broken part of you, not your personality. That's a broken piece of you that actually God came to earth as Jesus to refurbish and to glorify. The gospel If I was to say it like maybe John Mark McMillan would say it, the gospel is that Jesus came as a hugging God to a roving band of non-hugging people. And I think we still struggle with the hug. So as we look in this text in Isaiah, I just want to remind you of the context just a hair. Now, we pointed and looked at it in depth two weeks ago. We're not going to do that today. I just want to remind you that Isaiah is speaking very specifically to the nation of Judah, right? Now, Judah is a unique nation at this point in history because they're throwing off all of the fathering care that God is offering them. They want him to step back two steps. They want their space, right? They're actually trying very hard to be an orphan. 
A nation with a father working hard to be an orphan. Now, the problem with this context is there is this nation called Assyria, not Syria, but Assyria. And they're storming from plain to plain and from mountain to mountain, and they're finding all the other orphan nations out there, and they are crushing them. They are crushing and exiling and cleansing all culture away. And now Judah is staring down the barrel of Assyria coming towards them, threatening to do the same thing. Now, all the other orphan nations... They had the things that you would expect, armies, chariots, might, power, nobles, but they didn't have a father in God. Not they didn't have. Not a father in God that would step in the way and stop a bully. Now Judah had this. So Isaiah brings this famous Christmas passage, the one that we led off with. He brings this famous Christmas passage describing the character of Jesus, who would come 700 years later, but would not fold in front of bullies. Two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus is coming, adventing. That's what that word means. Jesus is coming as God's wisdom and counsel to a people in the dark. Because we are. We kick against the darkness over and over again until some light comes through, but we never see the light coming through. Jesus comes, and he is a guidance to people in the dark, wandering in the dark, needing guidance, needing bearing. Last week we looked, as Mason brought us a sermon on Jesus coming as God's mighty power to a powerless people to defeat powerful entities like death, like sin, like destruction. And today we get to look at how Jesus is coming. He's adventing as fathering care. That will never end. That will never end. Even if you perform poorly, even if you misbehave, But what does it mean for Jesus to be a father? It seems like an odd name a little bit. Because, I mean, after all, isn't God the father our father? Isn't Jesus more like a brother or a co-heir? That's what it says in the Bible, after all. In Hebrews 2.11, it says this. For he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's his church, they all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. So here we see uh, Jesus, or God referring to Jesus as brothers. And in Romans 8, 29, we see this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn or the preeminent and most important among all the brothers. So we see that designation twice. You see, when Jesus is called everlasting father, that is not saying that he is the first person of the Trinity. Jesus is God the Son who lives to please and lives to glorify God the Father. So when we see him referred to as everlasting Father, that's a designation of how Jesus handles his people. Jesus handles his people as a good father handles his kids. And the beautiful part about this for you and me is this happens everlasting and forevermore. These are important words for you to remember. Jesus' work on the cross is one of ultimate fathering. It's not one that a deadbeat dad would do. Jesus' work on the cross doesn't look anything like an absentee dad. It doesn't look anything at all like an overworking dad or an emotionally distant dad or an abusive dad or a dad who just did the best he could but kind of came up a little bit short. Jesus' heroic work was fatherly, and it came to you and me, a wandering orphan people. That's the gospel. That's the gospel, because after all, we are alike. We are like a people in an orphanage. They don't really call them orphanages anymore, though, do they? They're children's homes now, right? 
But spiritually, it's as if we are all in an orphanage minus a very ever-present, everlasting, forevermore spiritual fathering care. That's how we enter this planet. God's answer to that is Jesus. His answer to us being orphans is Jesus. You're going to find this. You're going to find this as a characteristic of Jesus in the gospel. I'll put it up on the screen. This is what you'll find a father doing, a good father, sacrificing, giving, caring, rescuing. This is what good dads do. This is what Jesus did. This is what the gospel has done, providing, defending, teaching, adoring, even sending, by the way, dads, even sending. This is fathering. This is why we see Jesus in John 14 saying, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, it's debatable what he means there. And if you have 100 scholars in the room, they're all going to disagree with each other. It could mean him coming back physically someday, which he will. Or it could mean, just right after this, him sending the Spirit to be with them so they would not be orphaned. I think both are probably right. I don't know that we need to go dork over it. I think they both could be possibly true and very good for you and me. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. That's what's important for us. But what does it mean to be an orphan? besides the obvious. You see, you'll see some characteristics for orphans as well. They will be exposed, vulnerable, neglected, isolated, cut from intimacy, victimized, destitute, and they'll have a temptation towards lawlessness and mistrust. You see, the gospel reverses our spiritual orphan state through the person of Jesus, and the Bible calls that adoption. Adoption. You see this all over the Bible. I'm just going to read you one out of Ephesians. Ephesians 1, verse 5. It's not going to be on the screen, so just listen. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Adoption's a very simple concept. Again, it's in the New Testament several other times. It just refers to us being grafted into a family that we didn't start off in. We were outsiders without the, without the right last name. And then we are grafted in, adopted in to a family we really don't have any business being in with the same rights and entitlements as all the other brothers and sisters. And we have a better dad, an everlasting and forevermore dad. We get to sit and eat at a table we have no business sitting at. We get to worship a God with the presence that we don't deserve. We are grafted in and adopted, hear, hear me, never to be unadopted because nobody unadopts. This is what Christmas shows mankind. Christmas shows mankind that we get this when we deserve it the least. When we are dirty and doing our dirtiest, that's when his love pursues us and adopts us. So we are not left alone when we deserve to be left alone. We are not neglected when we deserve to be neglected. We are not destitute when we deserve to be destitute. We see a beautiful picture of this in Psalm 103, which has always been a great tandem passage with what we've already read in Isaiah. In verse 10, it says this, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. You know, bad dads do that, by the way. Bad dads, they do that. You want me to be a good dad? You better clean up your room then. You want me to be a good dad? You're going to have to earn it a little bit. You're going to have to show up and contribute if you want me to show up and contribute. That's what a bad dad does. But he's showing a different dad. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, 
so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Hear me, verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So what this is saying is is that if you are in Jesus and you are a Christian, you are a son or daughter of the king, you are adopted, and you have reverence and awe as you stand at the feet of God, if that is you, then you are unorphaned and unorphaned forever. You are unorphaned and unorphaned forevermore. And all of this, totally despite how dirty you are and the dirty things that you do, You see, we were found loved and embraced, hugged, you could say, when we were the least huggable. That's when he came. That's good news for us. The rug's not going to be pulled out from underneath us if we have a bad day. That's what that means. It's not going to stop loving or embracing us because we act horribly. His fathering, it's going to endure way beyond our lack of performance. But here's the big question. I'm going to get back to what I started off with. Here's the big question. Why would we rather be orphans? Why work so hard to pull his arms off of us if that news is so good? And it is good. Why do we do this? There's an answer. We can find it in the Bible. The answer is is that we find the fathering of Jesus to be a little bit too restrictive, oppressive, heavy. But at the same time, we find it too good to be true. All at the same time. It conflicts. It conflicts. We want him to get off of our case and step two steps back. But then it's just too good to be true that he would even hug us to begin with. And both is happening at the exact same time. It's crazy how how we work, being as broken as we are. I'm going to show you a picture of this and how this kind of plays out. If you look at Luke 15 in your Bible, if you have one, this would be a good one to turn to if you have a Bible with you. If not, it will be up on the screen. It's a famous story. But what I want you to do is when we read this very familiar story, you will be tempted to check out. I want you to focus on how the son reacts to the father. That's what we're looking at in this story today, okay? And Jesus said, and he said, as he's telling a story, Luke 15, verse 11, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. Pause. Just a quick question. Why didn't he just go home right there? You ever read that story and think, wait a minute, (laughs) you were royalty pretty much. You had a pretty good setup, enough to where you could take a lot of money with you. It's gone. I get it. The famine came. The money's gone. You screwed up. But you're really going to go feed pigs? You got a wealthy dad. Why do you think he didn't go home? There's probably no wrong answers to this question. I mean, could he have felt pride? Like, I'm going to do this on my own. I don't need my dad's help. Maybe in anger? It's possible. Is it possible he felt some shame? Like, ah, I mean, there's no way my dad would even, certainly he's disowned me by now. I mean, I took, when I took that money, it was me saying, I don't want you. You're too oppressive. You're too heavy. 
I find you to, to, to be getting in my way. I don't want you in my way. I want to do my own thing. You're holding me back. Certainly he's disowned me. Probably wakes up every morning and thinks to himself, my stupid son, off doing what stupid sons do. I wonder if shame held him back. Maybe both, shame and pride. One thing we do know, he didn't immediately go back, did he? It goes on, verse 16. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Starting to sound a little bit like an orphan now, isn't he? But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hand, or my father's hired servants, have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he's working on a little speech right there is what he's doing, right? So here we see a son do something we all do. We, we see a son pry his father's hands off of him. You're getting in my way. I, I could do a much better job of this than you're doing with me. He has a hunger to be independent and be out from underneath his dad's oppressive care. You know, this story never tells you how young that younger brother is. In my mind, I always imagine it to be somewhere between 14 and 19, because I remember those years for me, and I knew it all, and you couldn't tell me that I didn't know it all. I knew everything, and the world was stupid, and everybody was holding me back, and if I just got the best opportunity, I could wow everybody and have the most brilliant life ever lived says a teenager, right? That's where I would have been. But then this famine comes, and he came to his senses, which I think is speak for the Holy Spirit, God and his stuff, and shook him. Came to his senses because he was living the life of a wandering orphan. I mean, look at what, he was vulnerable, exposed, isolated, destitute, the same things we just read as a characteristic of an orphan. And then he just comes to himself, and he starts to work on this speech to get ready for dad. It sounds a lot like, hey, dad, no way I could come back the way I left. <laughs> I get that. I mean, when I left, I had all the rights. When I left, I, I was super close to you in proximity and relationship, and there was trust, and you celebrated my presence, and I know I can't go back to that. So what I would like to do is earn my keep. Hear what he's saying here. What I would like to do is be a servant. I would like to perform. I would like to behave. I would like to exert myself. And maybe as a transaction, I can stay and have what? The things a father gives. Provision. Security. He's looking for a father in care, but he doesn't think he can have it as a son. He can have it as a servant because he's ashamed. Let's look what happens. Verse 20. And he arose after he's working over this speech. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Such a beautiful picture. And the son said to him, Father, he's starting his speech. He's been working on it. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And right here, the father interrupts, won't even let him finish his speech. He's like, nah, 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 nah. I've heard enough. I don't, he didn't even get to the servant part. He didn't even get to the place where he could say, I can still earn this. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
and they began to celebrate. Friends, listen, we could learn a lot right here because this younger son does what we do. Since Adam, since Adam, we've been buying the same busted up, tired, overdone line, which is you were better off without his oppressive fathering. You're better off. That's what Adam fell for in the garden. Hey, do you really need God? Seems to me if you just ran the roost, things would be a lot better, right? We see this younger brother do it. I see myself do it, right? Aren't we better off? You see, when we cater to sin in our life, open sin, and instead of destroy it, or what the Puritans would call mortify it, put death, instead of putting down sin, we kind of feed it a little bit, culture it, make it fit in, disguise it, make promises to it that we'll keep it. Whenever we do that, we are living the life of an orphan. Living the life of an orphan. And it leads to a callous heart and licentious living, just like this younger brother. Licentious, it just means unbridled, unrestrained. That's what orphans are given to a lot of times. You know, I don't think he's here today. He'd be embarrassed if he was because, you know, Matt Norman, he wrote a brilliant article this week. It's, um, I think it's called, How Can I Know If I'm Saved? Right? Brilliant article. It's actually on our website. I put it up as a blog. It's right on our front page. You should read it. It's a long article, right? But whenever you have questions about that, you don't mind reading a little bit, right? And he asks and answers a lot of really difficult questions. How do I know if I'm saved? Can one lose their salvation? It's a brilliant article. He does very good in it. He says this. I pulled a couple lines as I was reading it for myself. He says, when we fail to engage the righteousness we've been given, we become blind. When we do not live the life we were saved to live and we dawdle in sin, we become hardened. And that always happens. The more we entertain sin as though it weren't seeking to kill us, the worse the callousness gets. The worse it gets. We get more and more callous more and more licentious, and we don't even see it happening. Unless there's a famine, that is. Unless something jolts us out of our slumber and we come to our senses. So listen, if you struggle with this as a Christian, pervasive sin, nurturing something you should be killing, if you struggle with this as a Christian, let Christmas remind you that an everlasting Father's care is everlasting exactly as advertised. He is Father forevermore, forevermore. You'll find him waiting in the fields, waiting to run to you. That's where you'll find your Father. That's not what we think. We think he's going to be up in the very top of the castle tower with his arms folded saying, Mm-mm-mm, look who's coming. Yeah, I knew this day was coming. Clown. Probably spent all the money, clown. So excited to have you back. I guess we'll have to just cough up more money. Probably going to disappoint us there too, you know? I don't even know why you did. What you should have done is cleaned yourself up a little bit, went out, earned all that money, brought it back, and repaid me. That's what you should have done. That's how we see him. We don't see him just doing everything he can to put together a good 40-yard dash between the house and us as he throws himself around us and hugs us. We can't see that. We envision something totally different. Hear me. Hear me. Whatever sin you're living in right now, whatever addiction, whatever long-suffering, pervasive junk 
you're trying to scratch and claw yourself out of, but not hard enough. You need to know you're living as an orphan, a life you weren't meant to live, and you may be getting more callous without even seeing it. It's likely happening. You're acting as this younger brother, but you have an everlasting father forevermore. So good. I mean, it's the good news behind the good news, is it not? I mean, I, I always say that. Every time I hit a little piece of the gospel, I say, that's my favorite part of the gospel. But this is one of my favorite parts of the gospel. Forevermore. Never ending. And he pursues us when we are at our dirtiest. It's just too good to be true. And I think this is the other place that we struggle with his embrace. It's just, it's too good to be true. The younger brother thought it was too good to be true. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. How many times do you step into a moment of prayer? How many times do you step into opening up the Bible and immediately feel like I am not worthy to be here? I'm not worthy to do this. I'm not worthy to hear from you. I'm not worth anything. I'm unworthy. But do you notice he doesn't even let him finish his proposal? Stops him. You see, the father won't allow you to be anything else other than son. He won't let you be servant. It's not an option to him. He's ready to throw a party. Get the robe. Crank up the karaoke machine. Bring the pork. The white elephant gifts. We're going to go caroling afterward. We're going to party. That's what's happening right here. That's how he sees you. That's what his embrace feels like. We see Romans 5. Paul says it well when he says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, misbehaviors, dirty, scandals, vandals, all of that, he loved us, he died for us. Merry Christmas. Because when we misbehave, he behaves. And when we underperform, he valiantly performs as a father everlasting. You know what led this young man to say, I'm not worthy, is shame. Because shame, it can't, it can't understand grace. Shame and grace can't exist at the same time. They're, they're, they're literally mutually exclusive. If you're carrying a large amount of shame, you're going to have a hard time appropriating grace to your life because what shame must do is earn. I must earn your approval. I must earn you liking me. I must earn you being okay with me. I must earn. I must work for it. I must be a servant. Doesn't believe in grace. See, he was looking to do this so that he could be back under his father's provision, care, and security. He could be okay with the boss man again, and God won't hear it. You see, if you see the father to be without grace, all you have left is just trying to earn through transactions and living a life of transactions. But when transactions already been made by Jesus, and we cannot add to it, we can't add to it. So when we fail and we're a crummy son and we're crummy daughters, the fathering we gain from the atonement, God's work through the person of Jesus, his life, death, and life is everlasting, which means you're never going to be disowned. You're never going to get kicked out of the home. You'll never not know a father's care. You'll never be an orphan again. You'll never have to serve or live in shame-based obedience ever again. You'll never be unadopted. You'll never misbehave your way out of family. You see, God is a hugger. 
even if you cringe when he's doing it. It brings affection even when you rebel. And this love is meant to draw us to him. It's meant to do that. Now, famines will work too, won't they? I mean, the the disciplinary hand of God will get the job done. But when he treats us kindly and we find ourselves in worship and just awe over how much he loves us, that love is meant to draw us to repentance, lead us to repentance. We can't help but think of anything else besides being close to our everlasting father forevermore. So as we look at this, as we look at how that takes effect in our lives, that's good, but there's an extension towards others as well. There's gospel internalization and there's gospel extension, right? Because after all, this might be tough to internalize and trust for many people, maybe in this room, definitely the 84% not in this room, right? Might be tough to internalize because you probably haven't had the greatest illustration of a dad in your life. Have you ever considered that? You know, it's true. Some people say it anecdotally. Some people kind of toss it around. It is absolutely true. What happens is, is we take our earthly fathers, how they were and how they handled us, and we kind of protract it towards God. And we imagine, maybe even subconsciously, that that is how he handles us. Consider if maybe you have had a dad that needed to be impressed to give you his attention or his love, right? Always had to be first place, always had to have straight A's, always had to make first team, always had to sit first chair, always had to bring home a blue ribbon, always had to bring home a couple trophies, always had to get a good college, always had to have a high GPA, always had to have a good job coming out of college, always had to, I mean, just anything you can do to get your dad to just pat you on the back. And sometimes with the wrong dad, just that little tap on the back, it meant a million things to you. Why? Because you're not used to his presence. You're not used to his affection, right? Some of us have had dads like that. And what do we do? We become Christians. And without even meaning to, we think that's how my everlasting dad is. So we turn into Pharisees of sorts. I must do, 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 do. I've got to show up every week. I've got to be like this uber evangelist because apparently that's like a really huge thing in the Bible. I need to give at least 10%, probably 30%. Let's do 30%. I'm going to show up every time the doors are open. I'm going to volunteer. I'm on 19 list. Why? Because you want your dad's presence. You want his attention. You want to just imagine that maybe for a moment he's smiling at you. We just protract it. Maybe for some of you, your dad was abusive. And you just get punished, hear me, just for being you. No value. You just feel like I don't have any value. I mean, all I do is walk around. I don't mean to be doing anything. I just, but I just get the sense he doesn't love me. He doesn't like me. Maybe he's hitting me. Maybe he's mocking me. He's, he's abrasive with me. And all I'm doing is just being me. We become Christians, and then we take that idea of fatherly care, and we shift it over to how God looks at us, and then God just becomes cruel, and I have no value and worth, even in my own father's eyes. I'll worship him, and hopefully he won't hit me this time. Hopefully he won't pound on me this time, hopefully, because I'll do anything it takes just to be valuable in his eyes. Do you see how we do that? Why is that? You see, God designs daddies 
to make it easy for the kiddos to see how God is supposed to take care of us. The problem that we find is that dads are bent and broken by sin. So we don't always paint the best picture. In fact, sometimes we paint a very horrible picture. Maybe. Maybe. The failure of our natural fathers is meant to draw our attention to a father who has zero imperfections and loves us forevermore. Maybe, just maybe, when our earthly dads fail us, it's meant to show us and draw our attention to a father who will never, ever fail. In fact, you'll find him in the fields. He's ready to run to you, not to abuse you, not to reward you for good behavior, but to love you for you. No redeemable quality, no great report card you're bringing. He loves you for you, for you. And that brings glory to him. That brings glory to him. You see, even dads like Ward Cleaver, (laughs) on Leave it to Beaver, who always seemed to say the right thing, doesn't he? So smart, that Ward Cleaver. Always seems to do the right thing. They're even imperfect at best. The only one who has done the right thing and said the right thing is Jesus Christ as a perfect father. So our response to this gospel and how Jesus fathers us in his work is just to beg and ask the Holy Spirit to change our hearts. That's really the application for us, is to change our hearts. This is what it might sound like. God, can you change my heart? It's going to take the Holy Spirit, nothing short of this. Can you send your spirit to change my heart, to trust again, to not cower, to not pry his loving, hugging arms off of me? Can can you give me that, that ability to trust and to have faith? I can't have it besides you. Books aren't going to book me into that. Sermons aren't going to sermon my way into that. I need you to move that boulder by the power of your Holy Spirit or it doesn't move. That's what they sound like. Lord, can you remove the callousness I have in my heart? I have a feeling I don't even see how calloused I am. These are rewardable prayers and the fact that he hears and he answers. Lord, can you make it to where I'm not so uncomfortable with a hug? The hug. So I don't cringe, so I don't think that I'm not worth it, so I'm not trying to earn it whenever I get it, but can I just relax and just be loved and valued by you? Is that possible? You see, I love the idea of an everlasting father, not just because he fathers us from the cross and the empty hole in the ground, and not because he fathers us through giving us a Holy Spirit and not leaving us as orphans walking around and banging into each other, but also, and this is also his second advent, his second coming, I love the idea of him coming back one day victoriously on a white horse to call us together and reassemble us around a new banqueting table. That happens. That, too, is a fathering action, rescuing us, bringing us close to him. Go ahead and stand with me. I want to read this last passage, too, as we stand up. This is John 14. We'll actually be in this chapter again just in a few weeks as we get back into John, but Jesus says this to you. He's saying it to them. He's saying it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. He's preparing a place. 
He will come back. He will never abandon his post. He's not an absentee father. He's not an angry, abusive father. He means what he means. He says beautiful things. We are unorphaned, unorphaned forever. If you are in Jesus this morning and God has adopted you, he is speaking to you, even in this passage, and he has torn your sins from you, and he has torn your sins from his memory. As far as the east is from the west, he's not going to leave you. He's not going to hurt you, shame you. He's not going to demand that you perform for his love. He's not going to demand that you perform for a smile. He's not going to demand that you perform for his attention. He's not going to demand that you perform for his presence. And no, he will not let you be a servant. Your God is a hugger, and you are no longer an orphan. If, in fact, however, you are not adopted... If, in fact, you would not consider yourself a Christian, I would say you are an orphan. And the deepest thing I could say out of a heart of love is to stop wandering. Stop bouncing from famine to famine, which, is, which are pictures meant to draw you to him. And certainly you've seen that as you've slammed into a couple famines. Just the idea that there's got to be better. God must have better for me. That will draw you but he means for his love to draw you. Stop running. Stop trying to clean yourself. There's no transaction that you can perform that will add to the transaction that has already been performed on your behalf. So as we go into communion here in a moment, communion is a beautiful picture. It's actually proof that we are not orphans anymore. It's proof. It's proof that we have an everlasting Father forevermore. It's proof. Because a body, a body was torn and bled out as a fathering action to us. Because that's what dads do. That's what a good dad would do. So as you go back and you take it with your family or your roommates, as you go and do that during the music, I want you to consider where in your heart you were uncomfortable with God's embrace. And where in your heart you were still trying to earn it and be a servant. Where is that happening for you? Right? Now communion is... For Christians, if you are here and you are not adopted, you would not call yourself a son or a daughter of Christ. We'd say communion's not really for you. That's something that we do as the church. I would implore that you take Jesus instead of communion, instead of some bread and some juice. Take Jesus himself. Believe and trust. Believe and trust in the fathering action that he has shown you. Become new. Join the family. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for your goodness. It's hard for me to imagine myself in this story as a younger son, not because I don't think I'm failed, Father, but because it's hard for me to imagine you being super excited about me coming back. <laughs> I feel, Father, like I blow my inheritance every day. I feel like it's something that uh, all of us probably struggle with, but the idea that you were excited to embrace us is just mind-numbing. It's just too good to be true. And I thank you for that. I thank you that you say, don't go get him servant's clothing. Go get him an employee handbook. You said, go get him royal robes. That's what you said. And that's how you handle us. You're so good to us. You are such a good, everlasting father forevermore. And I thank you that Christmas shows that very thing. That a baby comes to be a king, to be alive, to die, and to live again as the most 
exemplary picture of a father ever. That is our mark. That's my mark as a dad. Sending my kids well. Sacrificing for my kids well. Showing grace and presence even when they don't deserve it. God, there's so much to learn. We have so much growing to do. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit that leads us. Your Holy Spirit shows us where all those cracks and fissures are and how they've gotten wide. And I'm glad for that. But I also ask, God, that your Spirit changes us because we can't change these things on our own. Grow us. Cleanse us. Change us, Father, so that we see you differently than we see our fathers here on earth, even those who did a really good job. You're so good to us. Thank you for your Christmas gift to us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.